1943, one of the most important artists in the world got arrested for the second time in two years. His name was Hashimi Murayami. He was a 64-year-old scientific painter who'd been living in the United States for 37 years, and he was doing vital research on stopping cancer in women. But as a Japanese citizen during World War II, he ran afoul of the Alien Enemy Hearing Board, whose job it was to root out supposed spies. So in 1943, the board seized Murayami to drag him to an internment camp. For Murayami, this was a stunning fall from grace after his idyllic early years in America. After studying art in Kyoto, he moved to New York City in 1906, where he found work painting cells and preparing anatomical slides for Cornell University Medical College. In his spare time, he worked on exhibits about Japanese armor at the Metropolitan Museum. At Cornell, he also became friends with a cell biologist and fellow immigrant named George Papanicolaou. Papa Nicolau worked on, of all things, the menstrual cycle of guinea pigs. Despite having little in common, the two men had neighboring offices and became fast friends. Papa Nicolau was especially impressed with the artistry of the cells that Murayami painted. But Murayami's real passion was wildlife art. Whenever possible, he'd spend a day at the New York City Aquarium. There, he'd watch the fish slink through the water and capture their rich colors on canvas. His watercolors perfectly suited their dreamy underwater world, and he sold several pictures to different publications. Eventually, Murayami's work caught the eye of editors at National Geographic, which hired him as an illustrator in 1921. The job was based in Washington, D.C., so Murayami said sayonara to Papa Nicolau and headed south. The magazine work was every bit as fulfilling as he'd hoped. Murayami specialized in fish, birds, and insects, and editors there adored his unique combination of accuracy and romantic flourishes. On the one hand, staffers remember him actually counting the scales on fish to get the number exactly right. On the other hand, while holding one of his pieces, you could practically feel the warmth of the sun-dappled water. The next two decades passed pleasantly for Murayami. He and his wife bought a home in the brand-new Glover Park neighborhood in Washington, where they raised three children. He felt artistically fulfilled, and as far as he knew, he had a happy retirement to look forward to, until World War II upended everything. Sources differ on what exactly happened, but in mid-1941, Murayami quit, or was fired from, National Geographic. Even before Pearl Harbor, anti-Japanese sentiment was strong in the United States. Ironically, his replacement was reportedly German. Murayami was suddenly jobless, facing possible ruin in a hostile future. But immediately after the National Geographic fiasco, he got a message from New York. His old friend George Papanicolaou had a plan to save him. And, not incidentally, to revolutionize cancer research in the process. Hi, I'm Sam Keen, and you're listening to The Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciencey history podcast, where footnotes become the real story.
To understand the plan to help Murayami, we'll have to delve a bit into George Papanikolaou's background. Like his father before him, Papanikolaou had been a doctor back in Greece, but his true passion was science. Options for science were limited in Greece, so he and his wife Andromache emigrated to New York in 1913. The move was a disaster. Papa Nicolau couldn't find work and ended up taking menial jobs. Clerking at a Greek newspaper, fiddling for diners in fancy restaurants. Most disastrous of all, he sold carpets at a department store and was reportedly the worst salesman they ever had. Finally, another scientist took pity and interceded to get him a job at Cornell. But the job wasn't exactly glamorous, studying the menstrual cycles of guinea pigs. To make a long story short, it's hard to tell when guinea pigs are menstruating because they don't release much blood. So, Papa Nicolau began swabbing their tiny vaginas with a Q-tip. What came out he once described as, quote, a cheesy mass of cells. He'd smear this cheese on a glass slide. Then, he'd stain the cells with colored dyes and examine the cells under a microscope. He found that the cells changed appearance in a predictable way, based on where the guinea pigs were in their menstrual cycles. Before long, he could pin their cycles down to the exact day just at a glance, which no one cared about. Who the hell needs to know when guinea pigs are menstruating? Still, from that research, Papa Niccolo got curious. Did the cervical cells of humans show the same day-to-day changes during their menstrual cycles? Because he wasn't licensed to practice medicine in America, Papa Niccolo didn't have access to patients then. So, he took a gamble and asked his wife for some cells. From down there. And he did so not once, not twice either. He asked her every day for the next 20 years. If there's an unsung hero of modern cancer medicine, it's Andromache Papanicolaou. But she agreed. So day after ever-loving day, Papanicolaou swabbed some cells from her and stained them, and then examined them for changes in size and shape. And thanks to his dearly beloved, Papanicolaou determined that human cervix cells did indeed change appearance on a regular cycle. He could tell that a woman was menstruating based solely on her cells. Which again, no one cared about. As someone archly pointed out, women didn't need him to look at their cells to know they were menstruating. Thank you very much. This criticism stung Dr. Papanikola. Back in Greece, he'd brawled constantly with his father. His father had wanted him to take over the family practice there and make money, but Papanikola had refused. He wanted to do science, to help people. But between guinea pigs and menstruating cells, what good was his science doing? So, growing determined, he expanded his horizons. Surely his expertise with cells had some application. What about diseases? Maybe he could use the changes in the size and shapes of cells to diagnose diseases. So he partnered with some gynecologists and got swabs of cells from women with a variety of ailments. Vaginal cysts, fibroid masses, abscesses, anything he could think of. And then he found it a disease where the cells clearly looked abnormal, cervical cancer. Under his microscope, Papa Nicolau could see several things wrong with cervical cancer cells. 
that had distorted membranes and fragmented chromosomes and a big, fat, swollen nucleus. At last, here was a way to help people, to diagnose cancer. Excited, Papa Nikolaou presented his findings at a conference in 1928. It was a total flop. First of all, the conference was a bad fit. His boss at the time was a committed eugenicist, and he'd pushed Papa Nikolaou to present his findings at a so-called race betterment conference in Michigan. Most attendees had other, darker issues on their minds. But even the doctors at the conference frowned. Why did they need this new diagnostic tool when they already had biopsies? Biopsies detected cancer by removing a plug of tumor flesh with a needle. Doctors then studied the plug of flesh for signs of cancer, like abnormal tissue architecture. Biopsies were more targeted than swabs, and they gathered far more tumor tissue to study. All in all, Papa Nikolaou's technique seemed pointless. Upon hearing this criticism, Papa Nikolaou hung his head in shame. His critics were right, he decided. Biopsies were better. He'd once again discovered a useless idea. For the next decade, Papa Nikolaou kept studying vaginal smears from his wife and other women. He lived on Long Island, and on weekends he'd put on a Schubert record, pour himself some orange juice, and work at his microscope. But he'd given up on the idea of diagnosing cancer. Other people, however, had not given up on him. In 1939, his eugenics-loving boss died, and his new boss encouraged him to get back into cancer research. Papa Nikolaou agreed to, partly because he'd been rethinking the whole purpose of his research. Biopsies were important for diagnosing cancer, no question. The problem was they were quite painful. Plus, you had to know a tumor was there before you did a biopsy and cervical tumors rarely produced symptoms until they were advanced and already dangerous. So what if Papa Nikolaou's cell smears could find cancers early, before they got dangerous? Or better yet, what if the smears could find pre-cancerous growths, which were far easier to remove? Inspired by this hope, Papa Nikolaou redoubled his efforts, and encouragingly, he found that he could indeed spot pre-cancerous cells. You see, cells don't just wake up one day with full-blown cancer. They acquire it gradually. Their membranes and nucleus change shape in a step-by-step process from normal to malignant. So by studying cells under the microscope, he could spot women on the path to cervical cancer and help them before things got dangerous. But for all its promise, Papa Nikolaou's screening technique had one shortcoming. He himself had decades of experience examining cells, all those hours in his lab and at home listening to Schubert and sipping orange juice. But the signs of pre-cancer could be subtle, hard to pick up on. Other doctors might struggle to see cancer, especially at first. To develop a useful screening tool, Papa Nikolaou knew he'd need to train other doctors on what to look for. He would need visuals. He would need art. He would need his old friend. Hashimi Murayami. 
Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in true accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com today. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. After the split with National Geographic, Papa Nicolau reached out to Murayami and offered him a job in New York illustrating cervical cells. Now, by any measure, this was a step down from Murayami. He was going from painting gorgeous birds and fish for one of the premier magazines in the world to a mere technician sketching cells in some medical office. But, lacking other options, Murayami signed his house in Washington over to a son and headed back to New York all alone. Thus began one of the most important collaborations in medical history. While Papa Nicolaou squinted at cells, Murayami drew them and charted the step-by-step course of cancer. His process was as follows. First, he sketched the cells with a pencil, using the same precision and accuracy that had once led him to count the scales on fish. But he didn't just mechanically reproduce cells. When the pencil sketch was complete, then the real art began. He'd start adding the colors from the dyes, dusky pinks and pale oranges, steel blues and blood reds. He also developed a technique for painting cilia and other fine structures, using a brush from which he'd removed all but a single bristle. And beyond technique, Murayami's biggest skill was his ability to look at a jumble of cells and reproduce just one or two that captured the essence of what cancer looked like. As with all art, the real skill was extracting the ideal from the actual. Most impressive of all, Murayami did all this while facing harassment during the war for being Japanese. Coincidentally, Papa Nicolau also had an Italian scientist working for him then, meaning that two of the three main Axis powers were represented on his staff. Things were tense. But Papa Nicolau quickly called an all-staff meeting, and he assured everyone that they were all, in his words, seeking the truth, and that they needed to respect each other. After that, the tension dissolved. The U.S. government proved harder to satisfy. In 1942, and again in 1943, the Enemy Alien Hearing Board had Murayama arrested, in part because one of his sons worked as a journalist in Japan and was allegedly writing propaganda for radio broadcasts. After the second arrest, 
Murayama was tossed into a detention center at Ellis Island for five months, and the Murayama home in Washington was ransacked for signs of espionage. Remarkably, though, despite the arrests, the U.S. Attorney General stepped in and eventually freed Murayama. Why? Because his art was vital to our national interest, to fight cancer. It is said, the Attorney General noted, that Murayama is the only person in the United States who can do that kind of work. Murayama still had to serve five months in jail through no fault of his own, but despite the board's threats, and unlike many Japanese Americans, Murayama was not deported, and he escaped internment for the duration of the war. And admirably, Murayama didn't let the harassment and arrests interfere with his work. In 1943, Papa Nicolau published dozens of Murayami's drawings in a book to help train other doctors on screening cervical cells for cancer. Given the unwieldy name of Papa Nicolau, the medical community soon shortened the term for this technique to the pap smear. Pap smear seems so promising that, in 1952, the National Cancer Institute sponsored the largest screening trial in its history. Some 150,000 women in southwest Tennessee received pap smears, some in clinics, but most in so-called pap stations that popped up in businesses and schools. The cells were then channeled to a clinic in Memphis where platoons of young women sat at microscopes and scoured them for cancer. And whenever the women had a question about some dubious-looking cell and whether it was cancerous, all they had to do was glance up at the wall, hanging there, as the official reference guides were Murayami's original watercolor paintings, some with the pencil sketch lines still visible. The Tennessee screening trial was a triumph. Using Murayami's art, the young women at the microscopes flagged 557 precancerous tumors, all of them in women without symptoms, undoubtedly saving their lives. In a wider sense, the trial proved that pap smears could be scaled up to screen large populations and find cancer without painful biopsies. Pap smears are now considered the most successful cancer screening tool in history, and they've cut the death rate for women with cervical cancer by 70%. Given his decades of work on cell smears, George Papanicolaou deserves the lion's share of the credit here, and he remains celebrated today. His face once appeared on the Greek 10,000 drachma note, and in May 2019, Google even produced a homepage doodle of him for his 136th birthday. But Pap Smears never would have moved beyond the hallways of Cornell without his largely forgotten collaborator, Hashimi Murayami. In the Google doodle, in fact, Papa Nicolau is holding up a slide that shows not actual cervix cells, but the spitting image of Murayami's paintings. When we think of smears today, it's Murayami's vision that we see. There's an old saying that life is short, art long. And in certain circles, Murayami's wildlife art does live on and remains celebrated. But even though he took the assignment under duress, his work on cervical cancer had the more lasting legacy. Life may be short and art long, but in this case, Murayami's art helped make millions of women's lives longer as well. To learn more, visit samkeen.com slash podcast. 
There, you can find more incredible stories from my books, or learn how to book me as a speaker at your school or event. Also, you can ask questions for me to answer on air, or suggest stories for future episodes. Finally, you can learn how to find transcripts, bonus episodes, and signed goodies there by becoming an official supporter. And if you like this podcast, please do your part to keep it alive by becoming a patron through samkeen.com slash podcast. I'm listener supported. Spread the word to others as well, both online and in person. Word of mouth means a lot. Also, subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places and leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening to The Disappearing Spoon.